Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. Welcome back to another exciting episode of NuclearCast. Of course, I am your host, as always, Adam Wilder. And today we have with us a great guest, Dr. Juan Vitale, who is a nuclear engineer. He's a career Army civil servant. But right now, he is spending some time over at the White House as the Associate Director of Nuclear Energy Innovation at the Office of Science and Technology Policy the White House, and he's helping the administration to advance nuclear energy as one of our clean energy sources. And we, we were talking before the show, and they're actually doing a lot of really interesting work that I think you're, you, the listeners of NucleCast, you're going to find interesting. And uh, of course, Dr. V, welcome to the show. Thank you. Very happy to be here with you to talk about my favorite topic. <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's one of our favorite topics, too, because, you know, many people don't realize this interrelationship between nuclear energy and then nuclear weapons, the defense side, the energy side, the defense side, they, they go hand in hand. And so given your background, you know, you've been an Army civil servant, so you clearly understand both sides of this. Let me open the show by asking you, could you. Perhaps explain for the audience who may be familiar with Three Mile Island, with these legacy reactors that were built 50 years ago, and may not be familiar with this new generation of nuclear reactors today that are almost like the difference between a Packard and a Tesla. It's just we've we've come so far over that period. Can you help us to understand what exactly those differences are? So I'd like to compare it better to a rotary phone and a and a smartphone. You know, the current fleet of reactors that are being considered advanced reactors are not your grandma's phone, are not your grandma's reactor. And uh, so there have been a number of improvements in safety, uh, passive safety, namely uh, where you have reactors that are impossible physically impossible to melt through. Uh, you, got, you have high temperature gas cool reactors, you have molten salt reactors, we have uh, fast reactors which uh, produce uh, uranium-235 and plutonium. Uh, so they're kind of breeders but not really. And uh, they're all using high, uh, high assay, low enriched uranium, which is not your low enriched uranium uh, level, which is about four and a half percent. It's more of the 19.75%, which is the threshold for considering something to be uh, proliferation, a proliferation risk is it's considered to be anything below 20% is is appropriate for nuclear power. So it, it's, a, it's a reactor design that 
has all the characteristics. So there's a number of different designs that, that meet this characteristic of being generation four. Uh, Three Mile Island uh, would not pass our current safety, um, you know, wouldn't exceed, let's put it this way, the, the passive safety standards that we have now with generation four reactors. And so we see that as a great uh, selling point for these reactors in terms of safety, in terms of uh, life cycle cost, in terms of the size of the reactor, in terms of uh, all the different uh, aspects that lead to uh, life cycle economies that are better for uh, different applications that we consider in the military, but also in the civilian sector, right? So we talk about SMRs so or small modular reactors. We also talk about micro reactors. And the distinction there is micro reactors are small, anywhere from 10 to 20 megawatts and less. Uh, and then, of course, small modular reactors, uh, by definition, are those that are 300 megawatts or so. Uh, reactor power output. So um, we're dealing with a bunch of these uh, designs. Uh, DOE is doing a wonderful job with the ARDP program, which is the Advanced Reactor Development Program. There's a dozen designs being funded by DOE to create a prototype uh, by sometimes the, the year 2030, 2033. Um, out of those designs, there will be a number of them that will be successful. Uh, in a timely way. And then um, I think they, they're they really driving fast to move this, the needle on, on decarbonization. In the military, we have um, this great project called Project Pele, which is a micro reactor. Um, and uh, it, it puts out about um, one and a half, two megawatts of power. And it's also considered transportable. Uh, and that's the real difference between the civilian purpose and the military purpose. We see the Pele as meeting a number of mission requirements in far-flung places, in places like Alaska, where you have very remote areas where you have military operations, whether it be uh, troops or whether it be um, radar sites, missile defense sites. And the same type of environment, but less Cold, I should say, is, is Indo-PACOM, which has requirements for uh, fuel and electricity. And uh, this project Pele is kind of the enabling for this particular set of missions. So project Pele, again, is, is a gas cool reactor, which, is, which also um, is, is transportable. And we're aiming for that reactor also to provide not just electricity, at a moment's notice, but also the ability to synthesize fuel. Uh, there are a number of projects within the Army, not the Army, sorry, the Air Force and the Navy who have demonstrated the ability to, to capture carbon and also use that carbon to make synthetic fuel that is able to be used by, you know, our jets. So um, we're going to be also, able to take, we're yeah. going to, this now this is something I haven't heard of, about before in, in terms of Project Paley. We're going to be able to actually capture carbon and turn it into fuel that so if we're in, in, in a remote base we've got a fob somewhere well maybe we have we have helos and and we want to we can literally create fuel for those from that reactor yes. wow I, I had not heard yeah. that yeah yeah that's right uh there's a company in new york in brooklyn called air just like that air and their mission, funded by DIU, Defense Innovation Unit, uh, to produce a conic-sized system 
that can synthesize jet fuel, whether it be JP8, diesel, or what have you. Um, it's fantastic. Um, it's not just about car, uh, capturing carbon, but also reducing, doing the electrolysis, uh, splitting of the, of the water molecule to put together and you know, to create polymers and make, uh, make the, the, the fuel for uh, aircraft alongside the lubricants and all the rest of it. So it's really exciting stuff. And then, so what, what that had, what that impact, the impact of that is to deal with the issue of contested logistics, right? So as we see, you know, our future um, conflict sites in the Pacific, potential conflict sites, we have what used to be a main advantage for American power, which was our ability to resupply our front lines. I mean, that's been the key to our successes in war making and, 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 and war in general is, is our ability to resupply front lines and continue fight, continue the fight. That is enabled by a great combatant command called Transcom, which you can't, and it, it's, it's currently using basically ships to, to, to send diesel to all these locations. And so our supply lines become, have become more vulnerable because of our adversaries in the area have gotten the ability to produce long-range precision fires, which inherently become very powerful and for which we need to defend against. And so our supply lines need to be protected or at least reduce our dependence on long uh, supply lines that could be vulnerable to attack. So therefore, any and all technologies that allow us to uh, reduce our dependence on fuel and um, whether it be to provide fuel for aircraft or provide fuel for electric supply in the different locations around the Pacific or Alaska or elsewhere. That is one of the big goals of uh, today's uh, military. So whether it be the Joint Staff, the Army Futures Command, the Air Force, everybody's geared towards solving this big problem, which is contested logistics. Yeah, you, you now that you mention it, it's it sort of has me thinking about the fact that if, if we could reduce the, the fuel requirements, like you said, through these, you know, Project Pele and these other reactors that if, you know, if, let's say we have troops that are deployed and they're not requiring fuel that has to then be shipped to them. They instead have reactors. Or if, and I think before the show, you had mentioned the commercial shipping. So if you think about all of the, you know, the support ships. Yeah, I was a, a sailor on destroyers and frigates and we would have to do underway replenishments and we would take on fuel. And if you could sort of somehow through this logistics line, this contested logistics line, reduce the amount of fuel that ships take on, reduce the amount of, you could dramatically reduce the amount of replenishment requirements. It, there's just so much potential to decrease the number of of targets for an adversary to strike to interrupt the American logistics trail. So it's, it's, yeah, it's amazing. And it's something I hadn't thought about before. And now that you mentioned it, it's, it's really yeah, quite and so To keep, to keep uh, you know, being realistic about this. So the, the electricity, electricity being produced by diesel is by no means 
the largest use of fuel, the largest fuel use of fuel is aircraft. All right, and well, it has been it has been that for the, the two most recent operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. It not always has been where aircraft consume the most amount of fuel. So all this does is at the very first stage of this of this deployment is is um, is replace the diesel that goes into into electric generation. But the second most important thing is using this new technology to produce jet fuel, which really we consider to be uh, game-changing in the battlefield. And do, do you think, do you see this react, the, these fourth generation reactors, some of the projects that are underway at, you know, the Army has, as being almost, you know, I've seen, for example, where Tesla, you know, the, the batteries, for example, are so expensive that you know, once once you have to replace the batteries, you just get rid of the car. And there have been some that have there's some guys on YouTube that have, have taken the batteries out and they they they're building engines, you know, gasoline engines that are now yeah. put in the Absolutely. Teslas. So could could you sort of do that in reverse? Where you know, I was on an Arley Bird Destroyer, which has two essentially jet engines, gas turbines. Could you sort of pull those out and put one of these reactors in and replace that requirement for, you know, because we would have to, you know, when you're burning fuel on a ship because you're, you've got a gas turbine engine, you're burning through lots of, lots of diesel fuel or lots of jet fuel. And could you replace it with a, you know, a reactor and eliminate that requirement? So there's two options to that, right? There's, um, Reactor producing electricity that moves a shaft, uh, and or have the reactor itself uh, become electricity, uh, an electricity generation system that moves a shaft. Whether it's direct conversion of steam, uh, you know, heat energy into mechanical energy, or producing electricity in, the, in between, those are two different spaces that you know we can consider. So that that could be an option. Certainly, the Navy does both of those things. Uh, so, certainly uh, that. But I think again, so going back to the need, the biggest need is aircraft fuel. Sure. Uh, that's the more like two thirds of the demand signal and and the conflicts that we saw recently and logically so. so. Now, now you, you've in working this project at the White House, you've clearly seen that you know regulation needs to change to make nuclear energy a viable source of, of clean energy and for some of these broader purposes what do we need to do to make you know because it's it's really expensive and difficult to build a new nuclear power plant what, what do well, we do so so let's make a distinction project fail is a military reactor which sure which uh, uh, you know operates under right now with the auspices of a DOD regu DOE regulation to build it in Idaho for testing purposes. So that that's one piece. Once it becomes an official piece of equipment for the DOD, there's a whole bunch of different regulations that apply only to DOD, where the NRC doesn't necessarily have um, a input into that. So if we grab that and deploy it in DOD, we have a certain set of regulations that. They're independent of the NRC. Now, the uh, other piece to this, 
So I, now I, so that's my, that was my job at the Army before I came to the White House. I'm still working the pieces of that in the Pentagon, but I'm also working out different aspects of nuclear deployment. So uh, one of the big things that we're looking at is all these advanced reactors for which there hasn't been any regulatory work actively uh, by the NRC. Uh, they require special special type of uh, understanding of how these, these systems work. Uh, but beyond that, there have been uh, numerous occasions where the licensing of these reactors, any reactors, but you know, most recently, Bodo and Georgia, have uh, stumbled upon you know a number of, of issues, and also other reactors related to to the, their deployment. Uh, sometimes it takes too long. Um, a new scale, which is a new advanced reactor, Gen three reactor. That's, you know, take it took more than was expected, uh, three to four years to get it uh, licensed. Uh, so, if we're going to meet the moment with regards to uh, energy resilience, energy decarbonization, uh, and uh, addressing these issues of global warming, more, more primarily to address the demand for energy as it's continuing to grow across the civilian space, we need to meet the moment and, and accelerate our ability. While maintaining safety, because that's important, right? So that's very important. We don't skip on safety, but we also want to accelerate uh, our deployment and our licensing procedures. So we're beginning in the early stages of, of engagement. I uh, would like to see more engagement from industry and others to make sure that we we, we can uh, go faster on, these, on how we, we do a regulating and a licensing. So again, we're at the early stages of this process, but there's a clear need to, to accelerate our ability to license proper reactors. Now we're so at that time. To... Oh, sorry, mm -hmm. go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. Well, we're at that time in the show where we have to take a quick break. So when we come back, I want to ask you to, to explain to the audience. So there's this discussion about putting reactors uh, in the field, on the battlefield. And people naturally have safety concerns. When we come back from the break, could you explain how we would do this safely? You're listening to sure. NuclearCast, and we'll be right back. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the AMLA Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. And we're back and we're talking to Dr. V about safety of Project Paley and other reactors on the battlefield. So for the listeners, how do we do this safely? So we, uh, well, the designers and, and the folks at OSD never intended for this reactor to be what we call the close area, right? Or the battlefield at the edge of the pipe. We see this reactor as enabling this is the strategic support area, which is many, many, many clicks away from the front. And so what that enables is 
aside from the electricity to provide electricity for you know lighting and so forth, but also provides electricity for uh, APODs, SPODs, and the strategic support areas, medical facilities, added manufacturing, uh, and it's on the list of applications that are all in the rear, so to speak, in the strategic support area. And we think that is a very much an enabler. So it, it decreases our ability, uh, it doesn't decrease our ability, it enhances our ability to provide, to push that fuel that would go to normally to electrical um, uh, diesel generation to the more uh, requiring, the more intense use, which is uh, aircraft fuel. So we are basically replacing uh, roughly with this current payload reactor, roughly 2 million uh, gallons of fuel. Um, with uh, with the payload generator, it's, it's designed to be uh, a halo system with uh, three years of continuous operation, 100% capacity. If you if you run it at 50% capacity, it will last you six years, and so on and so forth. Think of it as a battery, if you will, mm. a battery. But so so the answer to the question is well, first of all, we're not putting it at, at, at under direct live fire uh, in contested space. Putting in the rear. Second, if, if we are thinking of uh, the risk assessment of what would happen to a reactor in a battlefield if it gets hit, well, I would sort of first say the diesel generation systems require these humongous fuel farms that are, that have a, a center air probe of you know hundreds of yards uh, to, to store and supply fuel in that strategic support area. So, and the fruit, the footprint of that compared to the footprint of Project Pele is almost a ratio of 10 to one. So you have a mid, bigger target by targeting, uh, by hitting a, a, uh, a fuel farm than having a tiny little reactor in that sense. So bottom line is if the reactor is hit, it's a mess. I will not, will not sugarcoat that. But the advantages that come from assessing that risk that is of a, of a reactor being placed in the rear, protected by air missile defense and protected by all kinds of uh, um, capabilities, is, is worth the risk given the advantage and the capabilities provided to the rear. And I think that's what we heard from a uh, number of combatant commands. They really want this very quickly and uh, in areas where we can't use um, uh, you know, our, our supply lines are continuously contested. I think those are those are really good reasons to, to adopt uh, nuclear power. So, a lot of demand signals on this. And General Flynn in the, in the Pacific has has enthusiastically uh, told us that he'd like to see this capability sooner the better. Um, so, we see we see this as a as a as a as a known issue. I mean, obviously, it's an issue if you get hit, and so we have the ability to, to describe what that ha- what happens when when it's hit. So we ex- estimate the emergency climbing zone to be no more than a hundred meters. In that case, um, so which it's is a capability a, risk? So yeah, I mean, when you say a hundred meters, that's that's a that's pretty tight. That's actually not a significant. And by virtue of the, of the fuel, right? Triso is a tiny little pellet the size of a puppy seed. And you, you, you use this, this fuel in, in these reactors. And the, the thing about that react, that fuel 
is that if you hit and, and these tiny little pebble be beads go all over the place, they don't go any further. And so the because they're so tiny, they don't have very much to go, yeah. very, far, very far to go. So we were discussing before the show some some new uses for these nuclear reactors for that I I had just never heard of. I, I didn't know they could be used in these sort of new and innovative ways. I'd always thought you know we generate power, and you talked about you know we're going to generate jet fuel with them, and you listed we were talking and you mentioned some other areas. Could you explain for our listeners what are some of these? unique areas where we can use these new reactors? Yeah, sure. So one of the big things, in again, in the military sense, is trying to uh, enable additive manufacturing, right? These large facilities so that we can manufacture parts at the, at the, in the battlefield or in the strategic support area, more precisely, and not having, again, to, 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 to provide long supply chains of these different parts for the repair and maintenance of our fleet, whatever it is. Uh, that's one application. The other one is, again, thinking of the Pacific, is desalination. I think uh, that's a big, that's again another another uh, huge impact on contested logistics. You know, water and fuel are the biggest uh, signals for uh, class three and, 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 and others to, um, to, 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 uh, Transport for or long distances. So, um, you know, the amount of potable water that we have to ship to support the battlefield is, is enormous. So, I think our ability to grab, you know, seawater and desalinate it and provide it in sight, that's another big plus. Um, another one is uh, now talking about the civilian applications is, is to provide uh, hydrogen to make steel, decarbonized steel. Um, so that that's another one. Uh, or even providing hydrogen, period, hydrogen for different things. People are talking about um, um, making hydrogen available for transportation of uh, you know car car fueling with uh, with hydrogen and other things like that that require hydrogen. Another one, good use is we saw it in very much alive is this issue of fertilizer production. Which Ukraine being hit by the Russian invasion had to curtail uh, the uh, amount of fertilizer that was being produced, which had a ripple effect across the world economy, right? Because as soon as you decrease the supply of fertilizer, all of a sudden now your crops yield less, and because they yield less, it has an inflationary, inflationary uh, impact on the world economy. Interesting how just a little bit of fertilizer. Price, price, price check uh, and price increase causes all these pieces of economic impacts across the board. So we want to see our ability to make hydrogen on site and replace the traditionally used natural gas to produce uh, fertilizer. Um, uh, besides that, we're talking about um, uh, I talked about additive manufacturing, uh, food manufacturing. That's another one requires a lot of energy. And so, again, providing the ability to, to provide energy to make, uh, to synthesize fuel is another one. So there's there's about a, a half a dozen or so applications that we see, case studies that we are we're actually promoting and studying to enable, you know, so that nuclear energy becomes the enabler for all these different applications, reducing cost, Reducing logistics and um, 
making things more inexpensive for the public in many ways and enabling the military to achieve mission. Now we're getting close to the end of the show. And at this point in the show, I like to bring out my magic lamp. And, you know, I've I've started to let guests make three wishes. So I'm going to let you rub that lamp. And you've got three wishes. What would those three wishes be in regards to this issue of nuclear reactors, nuclear energy? You can do anything. You've got three wishes. What are they? I would say have an order book of, you know, 200 um, reactors by next year, whether it be molten salt or new scale or, uh, you know, even thorium reactors, if we think about them. So too. this so, would be folks, this would be, uh, you know, power companies ordering them. So this order book, who would, uh, who yeah. would order? So I would say, you know, the military would be our first place because that's where we have our ability to, to influence the budget. But also on you know, the other spaces, we're making uh, cogent and savvy investments in these, in these technologies. I think there's like, for example, Dow Chemical engaged with X Energy and X Energy is building a reactor in Houston or near Houston somewhere uh, that... Uh, um, makes use of just the steam, not even the electricity, to make chemicals by by Dow. Um, so those kinds of deals are going to be more and more uh, coming forward. There are another one which is interesting, as we talked about earlier, is the maritime piece uh, to build these long haul ships that are extremely dirty in terms of their of their of their pollution creating by by using not diesel fuel, but uh, crude oil, I forget now what the combination is, but very, very uh, polluting. Uh, there's an opportunity there to re- not only create this uh, new capability, but to restart the shipping industry, which has been pretty much dying the last 40, 50 years. And we're Japan and North Korea, sorry, not North Korea, Japan, South Korea, uh, and, and some pl- places in Europe, have taken the lead, and the United States, which used to be one of the biggest shipbuilders in the world, has virtually come to a halt in producing. Unless you're talking about military uses, just completely different. So, so that's your. I like to see that. That's low hanging fruit because that we already have companies doing that, and INL in the Idaho National Laboratory is is helping put put together the uh, TerraPower derivative for. For companies to do to do this maritime nuclear, so that's a low hanging fruit. I like to see that. And do you have you've got one final wish? What is <laughs> what is that final wish? Uh, my final wish is to have a one or several uh, plants that produce uranium. Uh, you know, not produce it, but you know, refine the uranium, uranium, produce trisol. That's that's a capability that we're missing. But we're getting we're, we're heading in that direction. I think companies like Centris. Um, uh, are taking the lead with some help from the government to produce uh, uranium, um, high assay, low rich uranium. So there you go. They have three, three of my wishes. <laughs> well, this has been an interesting show. So you, you really brought a lot new to think about for me and for the listeners. So we appreciate you doing that. Dr. V. Juan Vitale, thanks for coming on Nuclecast. Thank you very much for having me. And thanks to the listeners. 
and we will see you on the next episode of NucleCast. Wow, that was interesting. Uh, I don't think I had thought about like the logistics component is something how, how nuclear reactors can affect logistics and how we can take advantage of that. That's something I had not thought about. And then some of these additional uses for reactors. Uh, that's also something I hadn't thought about. I mean, we really didn't get into a discussion of just how reactors are part of, you know, anybody's desire for clean energy because I mean, you can't build enough wind farms. And so we're to make that happen. You got to have nuclear. That I think, you know, a lot of people sort of understand. But some of these military applications are beyond anything. I knew we could power fobs and we could move these out to four locations. But some of these other things, man, that was interesting. Hopefully you found that interesting too. This has been a production of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington. And this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Grunthal. Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Nuclecast. Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.